often not clear on what is an actual need, what our actual needs are. I think getting clear on what your real needs are is at the at the heart of minimalism because most of us have a bunch of stuff that we don't need and they don't have things they do need. So recognizing what your true needs are is really, really crucial. And, and that way you can let go of imaginary false needs and you can feed and nourish true needs. That's Dane Dormio, a mind-body mastery mentor. Through minimalism, Dormio has deciphered what his true needs really are, and in the process, found what freedom means to him. As a mentor, he helps his clients navigate their own journeys with essentialism, organize their thoughts, and unleash the idle creative genius within. This minimalist wants more. Welcome to the Enoughism Podcast. I'm Reverend Yugen Bond, a metaphysical author and energy worker. This show challenges greater perceptions of mindfulness, meditation, and minimalism. Come along with me as I interview people from all around the world about what it means to have enough already. Find me on social media at I Am Enoughism. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Enough Isn't Podcast. I'm here with Dane Dormio. Tell me about your journey as a minimalist. I'm so excited to hear more. Thanks, Susan. It's great to be asked this question because it's not a question I get asked a lot. I am, in a way, I'm kind of fascinated with it. And in another way, I think nothing of it. It's I'm sort of a minimalist by nature, or what I think of as I most closely identify with the term essentialism, which is is kind of the, the same thing, but slightly different definition. But I mean, it amounts, functionally speaking, it amounts to the same thing that just you have just what you need and, and nothing you don't enter when it comes to making attachments and taking on baggage in life. And on all kinds of levels, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. There's a parallel with my journey with Taoism. I don't think of Taoism as a religion. It has sort of religious elements. I think of it as a spiritual philosophy, although there certainly is religious Taoism and lots of different traditions and, and scriptures and priests and temples and all that stuff. But to me, the essence of Taoism is encapsulated in the Tao Te Ching, which for those of you who haven't read it or encountered it, this is what I consider to be the most profound and succinct body of wisdom ever recorded in 81 short verses. You could literally sit down and read the whole thing in half an hour. It's very deep and powerful and profound. And one time I made a meme for Facebook that had a picture of the Tao Te Ching on one side and it said, the most succinct, profound compilation of wisdom ever recorded in 81 short verses. And on the other side, it had a picture of the Bible. And underneath it, it said TLDR, which is internet slang for too long, didn't read. That's great. Which is just kind of poking a little fun at the Bible. But 
it's it really is illustrating this essential idea that to have an, an oracle, an oracle is something that is sufficiently complex to reflect the contents of the unconscious, of the viewer's unconscious mind back to them. And to achieve that with a big, sprawling, vast work like you know, something like the Bible is pretty easily, there's enough stuff in there that if you look far enough and deep enough, you'll find something that will relate to where you are in life or what you're dealing with. But to achieve that in a small, succinct form is an even greater achievement, in my opinion. It's And it goes back to that idea of if you can do the same with less, if you can achieve the same or even more with less, that's that's kind of what the essence of minimalism is about. Most people, honestly, at least in, in our culture, accumulate a bunch of things and then their homes are full of stuff and there's no space for them to live in. There's there's no physical space for them to move and dance and play and exercise and work and give birth to new projects. It's just the TV shrine yeah. room and then, you know, every other room in the house is just filled with stuff and there's no open space for humans to actually exist. So there's no room for movement. There's no emotional room for creativity because you have that shrine to the TV in the middle of the room that takes up well, attention. But, well, that and just the, all the other physical space that's filled up. Just to point out one manifestation of this, when it comes to exercise and movement, movement is a physical need of the body, the three main physiological needs of the body, sleep, diet, and movement. We, we need sleep, we need food, and we need movement on a daily basis. And most people, what are they when they think of movement, they think of exercise. Where does exercise happen? In the gym, right? They say, oh, we need to start going to the gym. Do you have actually physical space in your house to move and to exercise? Do you have to go to the gym or the studio or somewhere? Or do you actually have that physical space to move in your home? Or is most of the space in your home filled up with stuff. And for a lot of people living in that condition, they don't even realize the value of the empty space because it's not there. When you actually create that clear space for yourself, you realize the value of open space when in whatever space you can actually move around and dance and stretch your body. You realize the value of the physical space, which circles back around to the Tao Te Ching, which one of the passages or a few of the passages refer to, it's, it's the Think of a bowl. It's the the physical space that defines the bowl, the, the stuff the bowl is made of, but it's the empty space in the middle that makes the bowl useful. Think of a house. The house, it's the wood that makes the house, but it's the doors, the windows. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful that, metaphor. That I make the that. house useful. It's the open space that makes something useful to expand, to explore, to move, to rearrange, to evolve, to grow, that makes for true freedom. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. What is your relationship with movement? I love movement. <laughs> movement and I are so simpatico. I mean, that's actually kind of a strange question to hear because it's like hearing, what is your relationship with air? What is your relationship <laughs> with yeah. Breathing, what is your relationship with water? It's something so natural that everyone does it's like every day. So, I mean, something that, like, if you, once you've realized you, you literally can't live without it. I mean, when we talk about needs of the body, right, there are certain physiological needs and certain emotional needs, intellectual needs, so on and so forth on various levels. We, we're often not clear 
on what is an actual need, what our actual needs are. I think getting clear on what your real needs are is at the at the heart of minimalism because most of us have a bunch of stuff that we don't need. If you think about it, if your stuff is all in piles or it's stuffed in a closet or a door somewhere, it's disorganized, you never look at it. What value is it to you? It's it's literally if you're paying rent or uh, mortgage and taxes, each square foot in your house has a literal dollar cost associated with it, but it also has an energetic cost associated with it in the attention and the mental energy that it occupies and the opportunity cost for that space that you could be using for something that is of more value to you. So a, a lot of us, a lot of people have a bunch of stuff that they don't need and they don't have things they do need, like physical space to move around in. So recognizing what your true needs are is really, really crucial. And, and that way you can let go of imaginary false needs and you can feed and nourish true needs. The needs of the body that I mentioned, sleep, diet, movement, these are the basic fundamental physiological needs. And needs have different time scales. So like you think about it, how long can you go without air? Like maybe seven minutes. I think there's like a, a rule of seven. So you go seven minutes without air, seven days without water, seven weeks without food, you know, like in survival conditions. And meaning that, you know, if you're not getting these things, there there will be certain time scales, but your health over various time scales, your health will suffer and you will perish sooner than you would have otherwise. When it comes to air, it's really immediate and sudden. When it comes to water, it's not quite as urgent, but it's it's pretty immediate and a little bit less so, but the same with food. Then things like sleep. How long can you go without sleep? Well, like maybe 72 hours <laughs> under extreme circumstances, you know, and it's, you know, there's certainly limits, but it's finite. But how long can you go with uh, minor sleep deprivation? Well, people keep that trick up for a long time, weeks, months, sometimes stretching into years and build up an enormous sleep debt. And your health suffers. You, you're doing physiological damage to your body. It doesn't kill you, but your health will suffer, especially over the long term. And movement is in that category of needs. If you're not getting this need for movement met, your health will suffer. And for those of us who are attuned to that need and are used to satisfying it, I, I am aware from my own experience, self-awareness through self-observation that if I'm not meeting my body's need for movement, then I start experiencing these physical and mental health consequences in pretty short order. And I, I start to experience all kinds of symptoms like my mood, my energy, my emotions, my, my physical body. And I recognize that as a symptom of movement deficiency. So I've developed a great relationship with movement over the years where I do have that sense and that feeling like if I were to go three hours without moving, let alone an entire day, I become aware of the need. I feel my body, I'm aware of those signals from my body that it needs that. And if you think about it, we, like, we're all aware of this. If you have ever been on a long plane flight where you have to be in your seat for six or 12 hours straight, you know, confined. What's the first thing your body wants to do when you get out of there? It wants to move. And what's the thing that people have the hardest time with when it comes to mind-body practices? Meditation, right? Because sit still, think about nothing, right? <laughs> Who can really do that? Yeah. The, the need to move is a physiological need. And when you, when you tune into that and satisfy it, it is as rewarding 
as satisfying the need for food or water or sleep or, or any other need once you become attuned to those signals. Yeah, that's so interesting. I have so many ideas and thoughts coming up here. What is your relationship with items and things? You mentioned empty space and using it as kind of a means of creativity versus a storage unit. Tell me more about that in your own life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll back up here and give a little bit of background that I think will be really relevant for a lot of your listeners. I I grew up in a really disorganized, dysfunctional household environment with just all, all kinds of disorder and dysfunction going on. But among them was just this kind of typical American accumulation of stuff. Not not the worst, but to an extent that I that I now recognize as pathological, where it was just there was so much stuff in the house, but none of it was kept in order and it was always floating around and it was never like I need scissors where I go to the scissors place and get the scissors and use them and then put them back. It's like where are the scissors? There's some floating around in this room. No, there's some floating around in that room. Let's buy some more scissors until the scissors are at, at like a critical uh, saturation where you can find some whenever you need them. There's enough floating around you can find a pair you need them. And then it gets to be like that with everything. And before you know it, it's like you're just floating around in this ectoplasm of, of stuff all the time, but you don't know where anything is. You can't find anything. <laughs> yeah. Sounds and- very stressful. <laughs> Well, it, it it certainly is. I kind of have the view from both sides of the looking glass from having grown up in that environment, like the fish and water internalizing that and, you know, seeing that as normal I and mean, having an experience where my whole perception of things changed. And now it's just like being on the other side of the looking glass where I, I recognize that mode of being as pathological. And I have a whole different relationship with, with stuff and with items and completely more organized mind body energy system the big turning point for me in that regard was gtd are you familiar with gtd no tell me more oh i'm amazed you haven't heard of this i you'll you'll be glad i turned you on to it and any of your listeners who are not familiar with getting things done which is the name of a book and a whole body of work by a guy named david allen it's basically the modern day bible of personal organization and productivity the, the basic idea of the book is you have to have a trusted system outside your head, what I now call a distributed cognition ecosystem for managing your stuff so that you don't have to keep all of it in your head so that you can use your brain for having ideas instead of holding them. So it's about having a trusted system outside your head so you can put your brain to a higher and more creative purposes. And when I first listened to the audiobook version of that, when I first listened to that book, this was back in 2007 or so, that was that was actually what triggered the second major spiritual awakening of my life. The closest way I can describe it is it was like if my brain is a computer, it was just like defragging and reformatting my whole hard drive, or I- installing a new <laughs> and upgraded wow. operating system. It just radically transformed my whole relationship with executive functioning information and action management and my fundamental thought process on a fundamental cognitive level and how I saw and organized the flows of information through my life. Because we all have, just like we have a flow of energy, we have a flow of information and 
through our lives and a flow of action and action decisions that were made based on that information. So that was the big turning point for me in this. And my relationship with stuff now and with things and items, getting back to your uh, initial question, is a place for everything and everything in its place, only what you need and, and nothing that you don't. And everything in a fashion that you can quickly and easily get to it if and when you need to, and regularly reviewed and uh, updated and purged on some time scale. So essentially, my definition of freedom is when your sphere of responsibility and your sphere of accountability are identical. When Everything in your life that you are aware of, that you're responsible for, that you have some commitment or attachment to, or that has some kind of a hold on you in some way, is in some fashion collected, accounted for, and processed and taken care of in the immediate sense. Like it doesn't mean that it's taken care of, it doesn't mean that it's done, but it means you have the appropriate action reminders in place that will bring your attention to it at the appropriate time. So in other words, my my new personal standard is my complete world, physical, digital, informational, completely fully collected and accounted for. If it's worth keeping, it's worth putting eyes on at least once a year. And if it's not, then it's not worth keeping. If it's worth keeping, it's worth keeping in a fashion that it's organized and easy to find and easy to get to if and when you want to. If it's not, it's not worth keeping. That applies to physical spaces, digital spaces, email inbox, computer desktop. Yeah, virtual declutters. People don't always think about that. And, And personally, personally, I don't have a lot of needs for myself. I prioritize functionality and like in terms of movement, I prioritize functionality. So over functionality and physical mobility, like one of the best exercises in minimalism that I recommend for anybody who really wants to get deep into this is living in RV for a while, for some time, which uh, I actually did for five years, which was an upgrade from living out of a backpack (laughs) prior to that. I was moving up in the world. But since then, I mean, it's, you know, it's my choice to, to lead a lifestyle as a digital nomad, essentially, where I, I don't accumulate attachments and possessions and, and that sort of thing. I can't see myself having more stuff than I would be able to fit in a single car. Like that's, that's, <laughs> that's like, a standard. Yeah. If it's more stuff than that, if it's bigger than that, like, and, and that's a lot, like that's like the top, like if it's bigger than that, if it's more than that, like, do I really need to be attached to it? Do I really need to be tied down? Like the th- kind of things people do, you know, put stuff in storage three months, six months, a year, whatever, because, you know, sentimental attachment or because of value it's become so routine and regular that i just habitually almost unconsciously without thinking apply a complete cost benefit analysis to anything and i keep okay i'm putting this away in storage whether it's for a month or a decade and i actually think how long has it been since i've used this or had a need for it how long do i expect it to be before i need it and what's the value of it what's the cost of replacing it versus the cost of the storage space that it would take up the volume cubic footage or square footage that would take up the energetic mental energy of being accountable for it and weigh that in and like if it doesn't add up <laughs> bye do you find that like as you evolve and as you change you bring different items in and then you purge certain items out 
Like I find I always have kind of a rotating, like a relatively rotating relationship with things where I have like my, my basics that I know I'm going to have in 10, 20 years, but then other things kind of go in and out depending on like where I am in my life or what interests me or what hobbies I want to take up. This this is such an interesting <laughs> question because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of amazed by people that I knew from childhood and growing up in also just some background on me. I grew up as a rational materialistic atheist in the Bible Belt, a very rural, conservative, traditional in, in a sense, you might say. And, and it's kind of a place where not much changes. People don't like change much. And when I was growing up, my basic impulse was always to get out <laughs> as soon as I could. But it's the kind of place where most people are born there, they grow up there, they, they raise their kids there, they die there. And, you know, maybe they take a trip to Disneyland once or twice, <laughs> something yeah. like that. I've, like friends of mine from childhood or from college, 20, 30 years later, like they still have the same stuff, like the same Nintendo or the same swords from Sword Club in college. It's it's just amazing to me how long people keep so much stuff. And I mean, on the one hand, it's amazing to me. On the other hand, I grew up with it in and around it, so I understand it as well. But it's from from my 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 current viewpoint, it's it's just amazing because I have certain things I have to put it. A timeline on it like the longer back you go the fewer items i have anything from like physical items from more than 10 years ago are extremely rare from more than 15 years ago even more so more than 20 i'm not even sure there's a concept that i've uncovered and the technical term is executive functioning uh, the term i like is information action management managing the flow of information and action decisions through our lives the brain tries to keep track of everything, whether it can or not. I mean, short-term memory can hold three to seven pieces of information reliably, so it's not that great. I mean, you, if you know anybody who uses their brain as a calendar, it sucks as a calendar, you know? It does. Uh, it really does. Or an address book, it sucks as an address book, you know? But if you don't have this, it'll try its best. If You know, it'll do its best to, to do whatever, you know, to, as a contact manager, if you don't have one, or as a, as a project manager, if you don't have one, as, as a content manager, if you don't have one, if you're in the content creation game. It's, it's trying to do this stuff internally with what it's got on board even if it can't do it very well if you don't have external systems and tools in place to support it but every module everything the brain is tracking has an inflow and an outflow kind of like an inbox everything has on some level everything that I'm responsible for physical digital etc it has some kind of review level otherwise if it's not worth reviewing it's not worth keeping Everything gets reviewed and purged on some time scale, like files, photos, everything, like physical files, digital files, online accounts, everything gets reviewed and purged and, and kept up to date. If it's not worth keeping up to date, then it's not worth keeping, basically. That sounds very organized. Plus, you, you always know where your scissors are. That's very important. <laughs> exactly. In fact, let's see how fast you can find your scissors. This is a test. <laughs> there you go. All right. I could probably do the exact same thing. And yeah. also, here's my samurai sword, just uh, in case any ninjas <laughs> come through the window. <laughs> I mean, I think every minimalist needs a samurai sword. That's not like a valid thing. 
Well, I, I, I disagree. I mean, you, you might prefer <laughs> Chinese style swords. True. You know, it's a personal decision. Or European style, you know, it takes all types to make a world. You know, you're probably one of the few digital nomads I've spoken to. I mean, I've personally read a lot about that lifestyle online. You know, I followed so many people on YouTube. You know, they pack up all their stuff, you know, move abroad and, you know, live out of a backpack. And I, I followed them vicariously. And I have met some people who lived in tiny houses. I'm always like, my first question is like, what is it like? And then I realized, well, I live in a studio. So it's probably about the same. I mean, one man I was talking to lived in a tiny house. I think he probably had more space than I did in my apartment, you know, just the square footage. So when you get used to living small and you get used to owning what serves you and what you find practical and useful, like you said, it really changes your, your personality almost because you feel like you have more time and more energy to focus on so many other things. Like that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast. I had this space in my life when I wasn't consuming and kind of mindlessly consuming. I was able to think about other projects I wanted to work on. And, and then, you know, this is one of many things I've just taken on personally and it's really fun. So, and that's been my journey, you know, with, with my stuff and with my space and my time. The universe abhors a vacuum. And if you have uh, creative space to fill, then creative ideas will fill it. In fact, I think that all of us are creative geniuses innately. And the only thing most of us lack is a system for capturing and harnessing the ideas that we naturally generate. Because if you think about it, I mean, when do we usually have ideas? You know, in the showers, whenever you can't capture it, right? Whenever you're not at your workstation or in your office or whatever it is. And one way that I think of the distributed cognition ecosystem, which is a network of tools, systems, and processes that you create for yourself, around yourself to support your own natural creative process, kind of the way a spider builds its web and the spider, you know, anywhere it goes, it can put out a web. The, the distributed cognition ecosystem is, is like a web for capturing all of your creative ideas and harnessing them to be cultivated and nurtured and harvested. Or it's kind of like for the nerds out there, like a Dyson sphere, like there's like in that episode of Star Trek where there's a sphere built around an entire star to, to harness all the energy output, you know, built <laughs> yeah. by a very advanced civilization. Like <laughs> if we could just build a reliable, trusted system outside and around your head to capture all of your natural creative output. I believe all of us would be natural creative. All of us are natural creative geniuses. That's so well said. And I think a lot of it is like social construct. Like if you have a creative idea and you pass it by someone without the right context or when it's too early in its stages, people go, oh, that's crazy. Or, oh, that'll never work. Or why do you want to do that? You know? And if you just let it grow and you bounce off the right people and you have the right resources and the timing's right, any idea can become really interesting. Yeah, if you have the open space and the systems to focus and harness creative energy, amazing things can happen. And the good news is we're actually sitting on top of a, of a gold mine of human potential just based on the cognitive surplus alone. Clay Shirky did a TED Talk on the cognitive surplus that's 
um, just by the number of thought hours that uh, people spend watching television kind of measured in units of the number of thought hours put into creating Wikipedia. And like, basically we, we waste something like two or three Wikipedia's worth cognitive surplus of idle human CPUs just on watching television and, and consumptive kind of idle consumptive activities. So if we just replace a portion of that with creative constructive work, we have two or three Wikipedia's worth of new ideas and systems and, and value and art and everything else that human beings can create. I love that. I love thinking about my brain in terms of CPUs. That's super exciting. Yeah, the brain as a computer analogy is, is very, very powerful. Your stories are amazing. Your metaphors are fantastic. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with? Any key takeaways, pieces of advice? Well, I realized that a lot of people may be listening to this and thinking, oh yeah, well, that sounds great for him, but there's no way I could ever achieve that. I, I understand that's the natural reaction to have. And that's actually why I do what I do, which is one-on-one -on -one coaching and working with people individually to help them through this. I, I mentioned that the big transition point for me was when I first listened to GTD and it triggered the second major spiritual awakening of my life. And then I, I gained this whole new way of seeing and perceiving and, and organizing my thoughts internally. But it was a good seven years, at least, of falling on the wagon, off the wagon, like hit or miss, just like struggling to actually implement the principles and the practices into my life and bring my, my physical and mental space up to the standards that I now maintain almost effortlessly. This is a lot of a thing that a lot of people say they want to do, you know, I want to get organized so that I can get more healthy, have better relationships, more time with my kids, family, so that I can run a more successful business, so I can be more, more valuable in my job, whatever it is. It's different things for everybody. But if you are in like an energetic hole where you're buried by your backlog and you are basically living in reaction mode, you're constantly being pulled this way and that way by commitments and all the decisions you make are forced to be short, short term decisions based on urgency, running around, putting out fires. You don't have the, the bandwidth or the space to lift your gaze up and look over the horizon for long-term planning and steering, that can be a really hard place to pull yourself out of on your own. My advice is everything in your entire life completely organized and accounted for, and you'll feel so much better, so much more energetic, so much more productive, so much more creative, so much more clear and focused and optimistic and all the things. But I also recognize that it's really hard to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's really hard to do it alone. In fact, it's almost impossible. It's not how we're designed to work. We're designed to work with the help of others. And that's why it feels good to us to be of service because <laughs> that's the way our species is designed. We're designed to help each other. Yeah. And so the work that I do in one-on-one -on -one coaching is I become your success partner and work with you side by side to get from where you are to where you want to be, which 
usually generally is from whatever level of entropy drag that you're currently experiencing backlog and not being clear on your outcomes and your actions and what actions and, and what's in your highest alignment. So each day you're spending a lot of time thinking about, okay, what should I be doing right now? What should I be doing right now? Or you go to sleep every night and wake up every morning thinking about, okay, what do I need done? What do I need done? What do I need to get done? And go from there to having everything in your life, your physical space, your digital space, fully collected, processed, accounted for, organized, your outcomes clearly visualized, your targets clearly identified and set and scheduled. There's an amazing sense of freedom that comes from making that complete transition all at once with the help of somebody who can lead you on the shortest path through the swamp, through the forest, as it were, and, and get you there in the shortest time possible. That's an enormous commitment to make. It's enormous effort and investment of energy and attention, which I share equally as your success partner if you're my client. So I'm in that with you, putting in my creative energy and attention alongside you. The first thing is you have to make a decision inside yourself, and then you have to create the physical and social support systems for yourself as much as possible, as best you can, working from where you are with what you've got, creating the physical and the social support systems for yourself. Because there's three components to motivation, internal necessity, social support, and environmental support. It starts with internal necessity. You can create social support and environmental support for yourself. But internal necessity alone is not enough because environment is stronger than willpower. You have to create the support systems for yourself, the relationships and the environment and the personal systems to assist and enable your change. That's the, the most concise and universally applicable advice I can give that will apply to almost everyone. Dan Dormio, you're dropping balls of wisdom for the last hour. I love it. It's such a pleasure having you on the show. And thank you so much for sharing your detailed stories and your perspectives and your journey uh, on minimalism. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you for your insightful and stimulating questions. And if, if you're just listening to this and you want to look at me up on Facebook, I'm pretty sure I'm the only Dane Dormio in the world. So I'm easy to find. Feel free to find me there and, and reach out, send me a message. Congratulations, you've reached the end of the Enoughism podcast. Show some love if you'd like by subscribing and leaving a review. If you wish to support the show, you can download the Enoughism ebook now available on Amazon by visiting IamEnoughism.com. Make a Venmo donation if you'd like at Enoughism. Questions or comments? Want to be a guest on the show? Drop me a note at EnoughismPodcast at gmail.com. I'm Reverend Eugen Bond. Remember, we are all enough just the way we are. See you next time.